This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Israel has continued its bombardment and genocide in Gaza. The Zionist regime, which is a settler colonial military force backed by Western imperial powers, has killed at least 8,306 Palestinians in Gaza since the 7th of October. UNICEF has said that approximately 420 children are killed every single day in Gaza. Journalists have been killed. Doctors, nurses and United Nations staff too. More than 1,400 people have also been killed in Israel. To remind everyone, this so-called conflict did not start on the 7th of October 2023. The Palestinians have suffered ethnic cleansing and oppression by Israel for 75 years. Israel is an apartheid state. Now, colonialism and ethnic cleansing has led to the displacement of millions of Palestinians over the decades, many of whom have sought refuge in countries around the world, including Malaysia. But are we doing enough to help refugees? On the first half of today's show, I'm going to be speaking to Heba Shihab, a Palestinian student in Malaysia. And on the second half, I will be joined by Lubna Sheikh Ghazali, Legal Services and Solution Manager at Asylum Access. Welcome to the show, Heba. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for hosting me. So let's start by just getting to know you a little bit better. So how many years ago did you leave Palestine and why did you come to Malaysia? All right. Firstly, I am Heba. I am um, an architecture student uh, currently pursuing my bachelor's in architecture in UCM. I'm also a team member of Friends of Palestine Network. I've been here for like more than 10, about 10 years so far. Uh, so I basically grew up in Malaysia. The reason I came is for fa my father to pursue his PhD studies. As we know, um, Gaza doesn't have, um, you know, um, university, they don't have PhD um, a degree. So he came here uh, for a scholarship to pursue his PhD. He was here in 2013 and then we followed him in 2014. Malaysia Malaysia has been really amazing. The people here are so kind and welcoming. Um, and, and the most important thing is that they are a huge supporter of the Palestinian cause. Uh, they feel us, they know the struggle, they support us, government and people. So Malaysia has been wonderful. Um, I mean, it's, it's also a multicultural and diverse country. So they really promote good values of a human being, you know, tolerance, um, the way their their lifestyle, the way they, you know, they go through their life. It's it's truly wonderful. So, how old were yeah. you when you left? Um, and did what was your life there? Because I think some people, uh, many of people who are not aware of what has been going on, they saw the news three weeks ago and thought that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. What was your life uh, yes. like in Gaza all those years? All right. So at that time, I was about 11. And now I'm I'm going to be turning 21 in a few months. So 
how my life was. I, I was basically a child. I did witness the 2014 war. I can recall the 2014 war. It was like one of the most brutal wars. But now what we're witnessing is even the 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 most the most barbaric, the most brutal. So 2014 war for me as a child, it was um it was you know horrible and it was terrifying. But as a child, um. We were so resilient in a way that I truly remember like playing with my cousins, um, you know, having so much fun, trying to be together, you know, because these are the tough times. We really come together. We sleep all together at my grandparents' house. And, you know, we feel the warmth of each other because these are the times that we really need each other. And um, as as children, uh we are so strong that when we hear when we go, we would go to the street and then when we hear the bombs we would like be running inside that does not mean it's the war is okay or anything but no as children we understand what's happening but we still are not scared of what's happening so this is from a child's perspective um of course we 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 suffer from lots of um you know, mental issues, especially the sounds of bombs and everything. But at some point, we become used to it as people of Gaza. We become quite used to it. So what we see today is, yes, it has escalated, but it's not like something we've never witnessed before. Um, so, yeah, it, it was like that. But now, as someone um, who has been away from the country and and the physical presence there, I feel really weak. Like I don't have that strength anymore. Uh, when somebody asks me, do you do you want to go? Are you willing to go back to Gaza? I'm like, I really don't know. I think for a visit only. I have lost that, you know, that that strength I used to hold before. So the people of Gaza, whatever you give them, whatever you give them, they'll not leave Gaza. They're so resilient. I really hope that I go back and I regain this strength. Do you still have friends and family um, in Gaza right now? And um, how are they doing, especially um, over the past three weeks when things have really gotten um, even more intense, um, the nonstop bombardment? How's everyone doing? Yes, um, I have all of my my family members, my relatives, my friends. Everyone is there. It's only me and my parents, my siblings here in Malaysia. I can say we're one of the fortunate people that um, that managed to get out of Gaza. Um, and yeah, let me mention that when we came out of Gaza, we were. Uh, it was during the 2014 war. It was a 51 days of war. It was a ceasefire day. So uh, we were lucky that we got our passports. Uh, we were applying, you know, to travel before that. But then we were lucky to receive our um, passports and everything at that day. So we managed to um, to travel to Malaysia. So my whole family is there. Um, I have a really enormous family there. Um they some of them are in the um in the east some of in the south some of them were forced to leave their houses to seek refuge in other houses um and let me mention this that um about 44 members of my family shihab family have lost their lives they were displaced they were displaced in another in another house and also along with other families so you imagine like 100 
hundred people in in one in one house, people that you've never seen before, knocking on your door and coming in your house. Of course, this is the time I told you we we become you know, um, you know your 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 pain is my pain. I don't know you. Of course, we are together. So about more than 100 members were in that house and um, 44 members of my family got killed um uh, my it was my father's my father's uncle side his the 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 mom the daughters the sons her grandchildren a whole family of itself um and my cousin as well and with her newborn so it's it's traumatizing it's traumatizing hearing these news you can imagine a whole family, each member of them lost someone. My cousin lost his grandma and his uncles and his aunts. You can't really imagine how devastating it is. Um, also, in addition to not having um, not having a good communication with them due to the electricity cut, so it's been really a struggle to communicate with them. Some of them would have a good line, but... Um, for instance, the day yesterday or the day before, we were really having a hard time. We were panicking a lot that, you know, they cut off the internet, the, right. the, the telecommunication totally. So it's it was truly, truly like horrific. So um, they've, they've been suffering from the water, uh, water cut, food shortage, electricity, all of the basic life needs. You can imagine how the the a person in Gaza, all of all of his his basic dreams is to live a normal and peaceful life. How? At least have a drinkable water. And people think, as you said, it started just, you know, 24, 25 days ago. No. If you think, let's look at water. They they, they used to have uh, undrinkable water, contaminated water. So now with the war it's they don't even have that contaminated water like they have to line up for hours to get that they have to line for five hours to get bread and two bakeries were 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 uh were bombed so look at the amount of you know i don't know what to call it but um at, at 2023 lacking all of this life basic life needs is like um, I don't know, I don't know even how to describe it. So the situation has been really tough, and when we when we ask our families how you're doing and everything, they're like, "We are alive so far." Like imagine that no one is okay, but they're just alive. They haven't get bombed yet. They haven't gotten killed yet. And this war is a genocidal war, and it literally knows no one. A child, a woman, an elderly, no one, no one. And we've seen like um, the highest percentage of uh, casualties are among children and women. So I feel as a someone from Gaza, I feel like any of my members, my family members and friend, friends is, a, is at a proximity of death at any time, any moment. And, I really, you know, I'm not ready to lose any of my beloved ones, but this is this is our destiny you know and um we we just try to we just try to you know go on with our life or uh, not let it really affect us much but it's truly difficult i can't even begin okay. to imagine what all of that must be like um i'm really glad that you know you've had a fairly good experience with malaysians and malaysia as a whole so far um, at the same time, you also stressed earlier that you're not a refugee per se in a conventional sense. Um, you actually have your passport, thankfully, and you followed your dad 
um, to Malaysia. Your dad was furthering his studies and then now you are um, doing your tertiary education in Malaysia. Um, but looking more broadly, what is the reality faced by refugees in Malaysia um, when it comes to housing, education, healthcare? In fact, I don't hold the like the UN refugee card or whatsoever. Uh, luckily, I I have my passport and all. Uh, but I do have friends that, um, yes, Malaysia has been welcoming and everything. But refugees they do find difficulties. For example, the the most the the most basic thing, which is ability to work. They don't have an ability to work. They cannot work. So when you tell them we can welcome you and you know but you cannot work how are you allowed to you know have a living you you, you need to sustain you need to have a have a source of income so it's truly difficult and uh, um i have friends and i have friends that uh like they're syrian they are they're originally Palestinian. Their grand grandparents are Palestinian, but they grew up in Syria and they went to Algeria first and then they went to Syria. So they technically they don't have any documentation, whether they're Syrian, whether they're Algerian or Palestinian. So they, they just have like papers like, you know, some of them don't have the. Uh, certificate of birth right. so they just have documentation when they come to travel or something it's truly like tough for them you, you're like even me as a palestinian uh it's so funny how our passport is very weak and we have this green card to you know um it's like a certification for us so when you go to the passports and they show them the 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 the, the staff would, would be looking at your passport and like you know, with a very ridiculous look, like, what is this passport? Is this is this a passport? And they would be checking maybe for hours. So that is the passport passport holders. So imagine the UN. They are they, they truly are suffering from um, you know, ability to work and that affects their life in, in multiple aspects. But I mean, maybe Malaysia is better than can be better than other alternatives. So at least they have a place to, for, for shelter. Right. Now, some might ask, um, and, and this is the kind of um, sort of um, criticisms you often see online where people pick and choose without looking at the big picture, right? And some of the things that I've seen uh, um, people point out is that if refugees don't have the right to, to, get a, uh, to, get, to get an employment, if they don't have a right to education, if they don't have a right to, to public health care, uh, public education and all these things, then how come there is this one refugee who is um, working here? How come there is this one refugee who is studying here? Um, what would your response be to that? I mean, firstly, it's like a hum- from a humanitarian perspective, when you see somebody um trying to make a living and living at least as a stable or trying to have a stable life how would be why would you be looking at them and be like why are you having this this and that while you're having the best life qualities and you're not suffering from oppression you're not suffering from anything you know when you look at refugees you don't look at their current situation oh are they against the law are they you know they're working they're not supposed to be working and stuff i mean um don't you, they don't look at the whole image that's unfortunately this is the biggest um you know the biggest mistake or um you know the biggest mistake that we commit nowadays is that we look at a specific issue or a specific thing we don't look at the whole image for instance this 
25 days of genocidal war on Gaza. Oh, we look at who started. We look at who is the, the reason who started, who initiated this. We don't look at the 75, more than 75 years of oppression, of, of violence, of genocide, of ethnic cleansing. And we come and look, oh, who started. Same thing goes for refugees. I mean, don't you want them to have a good life quality, a good and free education? I mean, they don't have access to public schools, but at least they can, you know, but they have to pay, of course, for the international schools and universities, and they face a tough time, a really tough time, especially with some universities here in Malaysia. I'm sorry to say that. I truly respect Malaysia, but some universities, instead of making easier for students, they make it really tough. They make it really tough for students. So, I mean, just let them be. Let them have the life qualities that you have. They don't have even maybe 1% of what you have. So it's really good to see them um, growing out of their struggle and and making something, you know. So, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So what can Malaysia, um, Malaysians, albeit at a policy level, so policy, you're talking about the, the politicians, the government, or at a community level, what can we do to help support refugees, especially refugees from Palestine right now? Mm -hmm. um, there's one thing to mention, which is uh, that Malaysia offers um, uh, like um, a scholarship or a reduction of fees, deduction of fees for uh, for Palestinians. Um, like we pay um, as equally as the locals do, and that's truly like... Uh, like helpful for us as Palestinians because sometimes the fees are really high. Um, so this is a really good um, a good approach. I don't know if other countries, um, you know, do this, apply this, but this is truly good. Um, so this is in terms of education. Yeah, they are there, um, but maybe they can facilitate the visa a bit more. Um, students really suffer from visa issues, um, not only refugees but you know, in general, and I think that has to 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 play a role with um with our Palestinian Authority or something because um, when it comes to other countries like Yemen, they do have a facilitation by their government, I guess. So, um, so yeah, we're we're having quite of a conflict, I guess, and not everything is in hand, but at least um, maybe the right for them to to work. Uh, maybe not a full as a full time, maybe a part time. They don't have to. I mean, we understand the refugee kind of um, struggle. Like as we see in other countries, they will be like refugees are taking over all of our opportunities, are taking over our country and stuff. Okay, we don't want that in 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 Malaysia. Though they can contribute to the economy of the country, they can contribute a lot. But yeah, but maybe maybe you can take it on a on stages like. Let them work as part time with a, you know, allocated salary at least or something, or give them financial aid. That would that would really mean a lot. So, so yeah, this this can really help. Before I wrap this conversation up with you, um, Heba, mm -hmm. you know, Malaysia's support um, for Palestine is unwavering, right? Um, the po yes. entire political class. 
um, regardless of which political party, everyone supports Palestine. The broader Malaysian public also generally do support Palestine on that front. However, Malaysia itself internally is a highly polarised country across religious lines. And this mm-hmm. polarisation, I think, has unfortunately contributed to some of the confusion about the Palestinian cause as well, with some of the non-Muslims, for example, choosing not to get involved because they think it's only a Muslim cause. And at the same time, there are Muslims who say that this is a religious battle about Muslims versus the Jewish people uh, and, and so on and so forth. As a Palestinian, would you have a final message for Malaysians? Yes, thank you so much for bringing this point. I've been really wanting to speak up on this matter without my Malaysian friends and anyone, you know, listening to me getting uh, frustrated or anything. I mean, I respect their, their, you know, unwavering support and everything, but there seems to be a misunderstanding or a misleading concept that yes is truly a hundred percent on the first on a, on the first stage it's a it's a religious cause for us that message al-aqsa and all of what's happening it's a religious cause yes that's true but at the same time you want to allow other people to be to be part of the solidarity you want them to support so malaysia being a truly leading example to a multi, you know, racial and and a diverse country. It has to be, it ha- you have to apply that also with solidarity in, with Palestine. For instance, um, sometimes they would take it to, I don't know how to describe it. They take it, I don't know, personally or what, but they would be chanting against Jews, like, uh, like, that is not acceptable, you know, as you know, for us, we have to differentiate between Judaism as a religion and Zionism as a movement that contributed to the establishment of the state of Israel. All right, so we are not against Jews. Jews have lived together with Muslims and Christians and other races in Palestine, in the, in the historical Palestine. They live together side by side under the Ottoman Empire. So we have no, no hate for, for, for Jews at all. Who we hate is the Zionist Jews, the ones who are, you know, in Palestine, who are, you know, refusing to leave or with the killings of Palestinians and everything. So when, when you know, this really has to stop if you, if you think that, or even if they maybe, you know, their intention is good and maybe their, their intention is saying the Jews of Israel, in, in, in Israel. But no, that still, that, you know, that gives a very stereotypical image uh, about the Malaysians that they're against Jews, they're anti-Semitic, you know, they can be accused for that. So in order to clear all of this, we need to correct the language. Because it does matter, you know, and and Malaysia having uh, Chinese, Indians, and people of other races and stuff, they want to be able to to join this. For for instance, the protests, they want to be part of it. So uh, when we chant this kind of terms, maybe it makes it difficult for them, and and they would withdraw from interfering, thinking or fearing, oh, this is a religious cause. I don't have to know. It's not just a religious cause. It's a it's a humanitarian cause. You are, even if you're non-Muslim, if you have no religion, but as long as you're a human, you can definitely contribute. You, you, you're because your voice matters as well, because what we're currently witnessing is we're witnessing a political and a media war. So, you, you see all the protests in London, in New York, and 
hundreds of thousands of people coming out and non-Muslims. I mean, this truly proves that Israel has lost it. They have lost the media war, you know, and this is what's, you know, this is this is how, how it happens. Of course, if we stick to the idea that this is a religious cause, no one be, would be on the streets except Muslims. So we want as many voices as we can. As long as you're a human, you stand up for the right of, of a human being. You stand against the oppressor, then you should be part of it. And we as Muslims, we, we have the tolerance values. We have good Islamic values that we should allow others in. We should welcome them. We should, they, we should encourage them to be part of us and part of our solidarity movement. Heba, thank you yeah. so much for sharing this wonderful conversation with me. Thank you so much. It's truly been an honor. And um, yeah, I really hope that my Malaysian or non-Malaysian, anyone hearing this could benefit. And if even if it's a, even if the, you know, get, could get the bare minimum. And yes, let me just say one last thing is, please keep on advocating, keep on raising awareness. Do not, you know, do not let it uh, come down or anything. Keep the momentum. Keep on advocating because this is what they want. They want us to, you know, sleep. They want us to stop sharing. But no, your voice matters. When you click a button and just share a post, even if you don't have much followers, it creates an impact. So, yes, thank you so much. That was Heba Shihab, who's a Palestinian student in Malaysia. We're going to go for a very quick break now, but when we come back, I will be joined by Tam Hui Ying. She's the Executive Director of Asylum Access. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan and I will soon be joined by Lupna Sheikh Ghazali, Legal Services and Solution Manager at Asylum Access. Now, this conversation will also be available on podcast, so do subscribe to us. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome to the show, Lupna. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. So, let's just um, try to paint a picture and understand the overall situation in Malaysia. How many refugees are in Malaysia and where are they from? All right. These numbers are actually publicly available. So I'm, I'm using statistics from UNHCR Malaysia. Uh, as of the end of August 2023, uh, there is a total of 182,820 uh, refugees and asylum seekers that are registered. Um, that means they have UNHCR documents. Um, in terms of where they are from, uh, you know, we were talking about some 50, 51 countries. So, of, of course, primarily uh, they are from Myanmar. I don't think that comes as any surprise. But uh, we do have refugees from, from other countries as well. Um, so they are uh, those from Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, uh, Iraq, and of course, Palestine. So let's talk about the 1951 Refugee Convention because Malaysia is not a signatory to that convention. Give me an overview of what exactly this 1951 Refugee Convention is all about and how important is it for Malaysia to sign it? What are the consequences of not signing it? Yeah, I mean, thanks for that question, because this always usually comes up, the 1951 convention and its 1967 protocol. So there are actually two sets of legal uh, documents. 
Um, so what this, the overview is this, it's essentially, these two documents are essentially um, an international legal document that sets out the internationally accepted definition of who a refugee is. So that's a, there's a particular specific definition um, of who um, essentially qualifies to be uh, a refugee under this 51 convention. Um, the instrument sets out refugee rights, uh, international standards of treatment, um, state obligations towards refugees, and um, it is at this moment in time, I believe there is about 146 signatories uh, to the convention. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, for Malaysia, we are not currently a signatory. In fact, in Southeast Asia, there are only two signatories. Um, there are uh, the Philippines as well as, I believe, Cambodia. So in terms of like how important mm -hmm. uh, is it to sign it? And I, I believe, you know, this has come up in, in conversations before where we always think, oh, you know, Malaysia needs to be a signatory to the 51 Convention in order to be able to uh, afford refugee, um, the refugees in Malaysia their, their rights. Right. Um, I would actually differ from this position. Uh, and there are several reasons for it. Uh, number one, I mean, again, I, I, uh, I'm really much in the legal field, so I have to approach it from the legal perspective. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, so Malaysia, for example, we are a state that practices something called the doctrine of transformation. So when it comes to international laws, what that means is that just because we become a signatory to it, it doesn't necessarily be become applicable in Malaysia until we actually um, adopt them, you know, pass them in parliament in order for them to be uh, um, applicable as domestic laws. So signing an international treaty does not automatically make them law. Um, I would want to just add here that the 51 Convention is an artifact that came about after World War II. And so you can imagine that, you know, many of those provisions, there, there's been some arguments by scholars about how the 51 Convention is actually outdated. But we're not going to get into that. I think we're just going to talk about like how, how workable is it in terms of um, signing it and uh, what are the consequences of not signing it. So, uh, you know, our position is that it, it does... it makes more sense and we believe that it's more effective if our domestic laws, we start at the domestic level, recognizes refugees. And that can come in um, either uh, through amending our existing laws. Um, in fact, there are certain provisions even within our immigration law where it is actually possible to regularize uh, refugees' uh, statuses in, in Malaysia. I mean, that option is there. It's not like a new law that we actually need to introduce. Um, but of course, it's, it's not being done at, uh, at this moment. Um, in the alternative, just draft a completely new uh, legal framework specifically for refugees in Malaysia. And that, you know, we don't have any national asylum system. Uh, we don't have conversations where we are talking about uh, national legal framework. Everything has always been uh, adopting a very ad hoc approach. It's very policy based. Nothing that touches on aspects of, of the law, which is um you know, which is not sustainable. So ultimately, I think what we'd say is that we can have a legal framework without signing the convention. We can amend existing laws or we can, you know, draft a new uh, national legal framework, which is all encompassing. And we have, you know, we have examples of non-signatory states who actually are uh, able to um, uh, affirm refugee rights without being signatory. So I can give you the example of Nepal, for example. Right. They're not a signatory to the refugee convention but um, children are able to access uh, public schools. That's not the case for refugees, children in Malaysia. Thailand, I mean, you know, bringing it closer to home. Thailand, our neighbor, not, not a signatory um, uh, country. However, they've passed a national, national screening mechanism. So essentially what they're doing is they're taking over that role of um, screening individuals to see whether or not, uh, you know, they would be um, afforded 
uh, a right to legally remain in, in Thailand. Um, they also have uh, uh, alternative uh, to detention strategies, which means to say that they're focusing on ensuring that children do not get detained uh, on, on immigration grounds. So these are really great progresses made by, you know, by Thailand. So it's not too far away. And I don't think that there's any reason for why we can't go the same way. Um, you know, ultimately, it really boils down to, to the will to do it. So since we didn't sign the Refugee Convention, and as you pointed out, I think very well, that we don't actually need a, to sign the Refugee Convention. I mean, obviously, it'll be nice. But even if we don't, we can still um, craft our own policies, our own laws um, that can protect the rights of, of refugees, which should be the, the main focus. But since we didn't sign, what are the laws in Malaysia right now concerning refugees? Okay, so maybe first things first. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, we don't have any uh, national legal framework as such. Right. So we don't actually have any laws that recognize or even acknowledge the existence of refugees in Malaysia. So you can imagine that we, in reality, we have refugees here, but we have no laws that actually acknowledge that they are here in Malaysia. So ultimately, there's no differentiated treatment when it comes to refugees in Malaysia. Um, refugees essentially are, of course, non-citizens. And if you're a non-citizen without any uh, documents to be able to legally remain in Malaysia, or if you don't have any UNHCR documents, you are going to be treated as what the Immigration Act calls the illegal immigrants, although we usually um, use the term undocumented um, immigrants or undocumented persons. Refugees with UNHCR documents, they're allowed to remain in Malaysia um, due to this policy that uh, that uh, Malaysia has, has adopted, which is very much based on a more humanitarian approach. And so it's really more about you know, this moral obligation rather than a legal one. Um, but even then, the emphasis has always been on this temporary permission to stay. The mm -hmm. idea is that refugees are not welcome to stay here indefinitely. Um, they're more than welcome to maybe, I suppose, transit through, but you know, it, it's only on a temporary basis. So in terms of like, what are the laws um, concerning refugees that are applicable? So domestic laws are applicable to refugees regardless of their immigration status. So, um, you know, you you don't really have sort of like a spe special set of laws that apply differently just because they're, right. they're refugees. I, I just want to add maybe one thing. Yeah. We do, do have existing laws um, that provide uh, protection to refugees, but not, that's not because of their status as refugees. It's just that these domestic laws are applicable regardless. So whether it's in labor protection, whether it's in the Child Act, um, you know, laws relating to domestic violence, they are there, they protect both citizens and non-citizens. But of course, it's the question is of access. If you don't have the document to be able to access these state services, um, there's no access at all. And that's what I want to ask, right? Because like you said, we don't have a legal framework that actually um, protects um, the rights of refugees, right? So what is the effects of that on, on not having a proper le legal framework on refugee issues, uh, refugees? Um, how does this affect the lives of those who wish to seek asylum in our country? So without framework, without specific laws that recognize uh, refugees, that afford legal protection to refugees, refugees don't have any legal protection. So um, I want to focus firstly on that legal right 
to remain in Malaysia or the legal uh, right to stay. Um, they're treated as, uh, refugees in Malaysia are treated as, as I mentioned just now, illegal immigrants. Uh, what that means is that you are subjected to uh, arbitrary arrest and detention. There is always that risk, particularly if you don't have any UNHCR documents. And there are also other various uh, rights violations. So I'll give you a few examples. Mm -hmm. When you don't have any documents in order to be able to legally stay, or we don't have any documents that basically afford you um, a legal status, um, your protection space becomes very small and limited. And in terms of significant challenges, I spoke about arbitrary arrest and detention. There's, um, I wanted to highlight that um, I have a figure here. So as of 11th October 2021, there are reportedly 1,425 children in detention across Malaysia. When I speak about that risk of arrest and detention, children are not excluded from that. Children are uh, actively being detained in immigration raids if they don't have access to documentation. And there are a lot of reports that um, speak about the appalling conditions in detention centers um, by Suhakam and the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health. So that is, to me, very troubling, uh, this idea of um, that risk and that children are, are actively being detained. Um, other things that usually that, that would come to mind, of course, is uh, the lack of legal right to work. So refugees are not, uh, they do not have that uh, explicit uh, legal right uh, to work. So refugees uh, survive by working illegally, often in, in you know, the, the triple D, dirty, difficult, dangerous jobs under usually very exploitative conditions. Um, so that always, that's, that is a risk that it always exists. There's a lack of access to a formal or quality education system. So I mentioned earlier just now, refugee children are not able to access public schools. And so we have about 30% of over 30,000 refugee children um, attending some form of alternative learning center. So these are informal education sectors um, as an alternative to, as they're not able to access that informal education. So these are the realities that really have this profound effect because it permeates every aspect of every refugee um, who are in Malaysia. So the thing about Malaysia is um, Malaysia is unequivocally um, behind Palestine in support of the Palestinian cause, the Palestinian struggle for liberation. Um, you know, and it's not just about these few weeks, but but something that has been going on for decades, right? Um, politicians from all sides uh, of the political spectrum come together um, to show their solidarity with the Palestinian people. Um, we've had rallies, ra many, many rallies that have been going on every single week. Um, and, and, you know, the Prime Minister is going from country to country in many parts of the world, um, doing diplomacy work to try and push for peace in Palestine. Um, now, this is, is all very important and it shouldn't be, you know, reduced in, 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 in any sense. But how important is it, Lubna? to improve our refugee protection laws right now, especially given the ongoing genocide in Gaza? So I can say that it's always important to improve our... I mean, maybe first things first is that there are no refugee protection laws. That's the problem. Right. There are no laws. I mean, let's not even talk about improving refugee protection laws. I think the, 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 the question is we need to actually have one right. to begin with. Um, no, but, uh, but, but, but that question is, is, still, is still valid. Um, and I, I just wanted to highlight that I think it's always this, this question of having laws that recognize, uh, recognizes refugees in, in Malaysia is important regardless of, uh, you know, regardless of developments around the world. 
So you said, you mentioned just now about um, how the oppression against Palestinians has been ongoing for a really long time. You're absolutely right. We're talking about 75 years of apartheid and brutal occupation. Absolutely valid. But the reality is that, you know, this is something that affects other communities from other countries as well. We're talking about, I mean, of course, um, um, one thing that always comes to mind are the Rohingya for, from, from Myanmar. Um, you know, some scholars have uh, termed it as slow burning genocide. Um, and we're not even talking about the 2017 uh, crisis uh, as well. Uh, the rise of the Taliban in, in Afghanistan, it, it, it needs to be uh, mentioned as well. Earlier this year, I don't know if many people know, I mean, as we're having all these rallies about Palestine, earlier this year, um, I believe sometime in mid-April, uh, a conflict broke out in Sudan, resulting in this massive amount of, of displacement and just people fleeing for, for safety. And so the reality is we are always going to have um, people around the world who are in need of safety and some of them will land on, on our shores. And this is not something new. It's not something that happened on 7th October and then suddenly we've got all these refugees. We have a large number of them. We host, I think, the largest numbers all, all of Southeast Asia, I believe. And they find safety on our shores. It is, to me, ridiculous that we don't have anything in place in order to be able to regularize them, in order for them to be able to not just access safety, that's insufficient. It, it's in order to be able to live a life with access to rights and dignity. So ultimately, it really does. I think these current events does offer us a reflection point in terms of what we're doing currently here uh, in Malaysia. So critics, um, especially on social media, I've seen yes. this argument and it goes, caring for refugees means wanting problems to resolve in their home country, wanting independence for them in their home country. It doesn't right. mean allowing refugees to come to Malaysia. How would you respond to these types of arguments? So I would start with this. At the end of the day, nobody chooses to be a refugee. Nobody Nobody would want to leave their homeland, their family in some situations, their community, their language, their culture, everything that, that makes it their home. Of course, if you're talking about an idealistic solution, it's about ensuring that the situations that cause people to flee their home country does not exist to begin with. But that requires a political answer. That requires perhaps, you know, um, multiple states coming together and I, I suppose, I don't know, either um, uh, sanctioning a particular country. And we're not even going to talk about the UN here because I, <laughs> I have no faith in that body at this moment in time. Yep. So, so of course, that, that would be the idea, right? That in an ideal world, nobody is forced to leave their, their homeland. But look, ultimately, at the end of the day, these conflicts, as we can see, that are exploding around the world are not something that happens over a short period of time. They're very long. You're not going to find a solution immediately. In the meantime, people are living their life year in and year out without being able, you know, without being able to access very basic things. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, it has to address the reality that people have that right to seek safety and refuge. And that right should be respected and afforded. I, I just want to maybe share a quote um, that uh, that a, a writer um, had uh had written in, in a book which still resonates with me. Right. Um, her name is Dina Nayeri, and she says, it is the obligation of every person born in a safer room to open the door when someone in danger knocks. And I think this is what it boils down to, really. It's not about big political answers. It's just about being able to open the door when someone in danger needs that safety. I think that's really wonderfully put. Now, the government doesn't seem to be taking any meaningful steps, just like 
the years past to really come up with a legal framework um, to protect refugees in Malaysia. But in light of recent events, the all-party parliamentary group did come up with something, and this is called the Special Pass. Um, and, and this all-party all party parliamentary group Malaysia on refugee policy specifically, and they came up with this idea of a special pass for all Palestinians in Malaysia, which would allow um, Palestinian refugees temporary stay and work. What are your thoughts on this special pass? I mean, an immediate reaction, of course, it's great. Wonderful. Um, that's great that you are um, taking steps to be able to afford that kind of um, protection for Palestinians already in Malaysia to be able to remain because going back to Palestine is absolutely impossible at this moment in time. But um, of course there's a but, it's very reactionary. I want to say this is not the first time that um, the government has actually come up with an initiative to provide uh, refugees in Malaysia um, you know, access to, to basic rights, to be able to um, stay temporarily as well as, as, as um, access employment. Um, in 2015, uh, there was a, a, a particular government scheme uh, for some 3,000 Syrian refugees to be able to to come to Malaysia and have access to this um, to this right uh, as as well, but it's it's reactionary and, and it doesn't address the fact that it's you know we have so many others who need that access um, as well. So you know ultimately it's great that this special pass is granted, but if this can be expanded. To others, the fact that the government is able to uh, run this initiative on this special pass for for Palestinians is great, but that means that that can actually there is a way to be able to expand this to others, and that should be the way forward. And before we wrap this conversation up, Lubna, would you have a final message for us? Just reflecting on the events of the past few weeks, um, looking at you know all the protests and demonstrations that have been taking place on our streets as we express solidarity for Palestinians. It's important to address the oppression that is happening elsewhere, but we also need to also address the oppression that is happening in our own backyard. I mean, we can't be hypocritical about this. Um, you know, supporting a particular cause, uh, for me, I think is, is for sure important, but I think it's also about acting on what is within our means. And this is within our means. We are able to do something. For some reason or other, we are dragging our foot on it. And it can't be one or another. We can't have sort of like two stances that are directly um, opposed to one another. You know, we can't, you know, we can't express solidarity for, for Palestinians and yet not be able, like Palestinians in Malaysia themselves would not be able to uh, um, access the kind of rights that any human being uh, should have access to ultimately. So this is just the final message. I think just addressing our own backyard, addressing our approach and thinking about how do we move forward, how do we go on from here in a way that you know, includes all refugees in, in Malaysia. And on that note, Lubna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. That was Lubna Sheikh Ghazali, Legal Services and Solutions Manager at Asylum Access. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.